We're ploughing through the New Testament part of our story series. Uh, We're coming to the end now of the life of Jesus. Remember having spent a, a time looking at the beginnings of his life. We then split up his ministry into three years, the year of inauguration, uh, the year of popularity, and then finally <clears throat> the year of opposition. In the end, Jesus was not nailed to a cross because he hung out with some prostitutes and some homeless people. In the end, they nailed him to a cross because they understood who he was claiming to be and what he was claiming uh, to do. And it's a frightening sign of how disconnected the religious leaders of the day had become with the God story, that when God turned up to do what God had always said he would do, they didn't recognize his coming. Isn't that a tragic thing? That when God's at work in his world, his own people can't see it. It makes me nervous about not seeing what God is doing. It makes me nervous about making sure that my own agenda and my own preconceived ideas and my own misconceptions and my own priorities don't mask me from seeing what Jesus is doing in the here and now. So with that proviso, let's get into uh, just one verse that Chris read to us from John chapter 20. And I want to hang my thoughts on this verse for us this morning. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The phrase only makes sense, the hour has come, if we're all waiting for something. If I said to you, right, time's up, you go, for what? What are we waiting for? What what time are you referring to? Well, we've got to go right back in the story, and forgive me as we travel some well-worn paths this morning that we've done through this year, as we just trace a little bit of the line that brings us to this very moment. If you go right back to the beginning of the Bible and to Genesis chapter 3, that dark, horrific hour when the world fell, when there was this great chasm that opened up between God and humanity, when Adam and Eve, instead of rushing towards God, when they heard him walking in the garden, found themselves running away and hiding, God begins to tell Adam and Eve what it's going to be like in this new world, that was separated from him, how work is going to be hard and how childbirth is going to be painful and how you're going to toil long in the land and and it'll be hard to bear fruit, how men and women won't get on anymore, women will want to control, men will end up being passive. It's all there in Genesis chapter 3. Hard to believe I know that any of that ever came through. And then tucked away in the middle of all this cursing and bad news for humanity is this verse of hope. Way back at the beginning of the Bible, Jesus, uh, where is it? Here we go. It's coming up now. Jesus, uh, God promises to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's to the husband and the wife. There'll be strife between you because you're living under the curse. And between your offspring and hers, this strife, this conflict between men and women will, will go on through the ages. It's not how God intended. It's not how we should live. It's simply a reflection of how it will be. And then these fascinating, hope-filled words. He will crush your head. That's Satan. Uh, you will, that's Jesus, sorry. And you will strike his heal. This idea that, the, that an offspring will come. Someone will come from the descendant of Eve who will crush the head 
of the serpent, the devil. He will strike our heel in so many ways. We see him ruling with a small r in so many ways around the world. But a day is coming when one will come who will ultimately deal with him and give him that fatal blow. And so way back right at the beginning, there's this anticipation, someone is coming. We're waiting for something. And then we skip through quite a a number of years to uh, Genesis chapter 12 and to a very important moment when God calls Abraham and says to Abraham, look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to bless your nation. And then out of that, I'm going to bless the entire world. And everyone goes, how? How will that be? When? When will that happen? So anyone who knows the story is left waiting. We're waiting for someone who will crush Satan's head. We're waiting for someone who will cause the family of Abraham to become a blessing to the whole nations. When will this be? Who will this be? How will this be? We're waiting. And then you get into the heart of the Old Testament and to the book of Leviticus, which is a favorite for many of you, I know. Which introduces us to the whole priestly and sacrificial system. The first five sacrifices, the main sacrifices of Judaism introduced to us in the first five chapters of Leviticus are one day to be gloriously reflected in the way that Jesus died. And so the book of Leviticus introduces us to a way of life for the Jewish people. The priests were at the heart of that way of life. Imagine being a priest for a moment. Every day a priest would perform the sacrifices that was incredibly physical and demanding in nature. Imagine helping with sacrifices all day long and you never stopped. You went out into the car park, you dragged in a bull that didn't want to come through the doors, through the glass door, up onto the platform and you slaughtered it. And when you'd cleared up some of the mess, you went to the next worshipper and you did it all. Can you imagine the smell and the stench by lunchtime? No, no I'm serious. Okay, imagine the, the physical nature of this job. Dealing with people's sin was a messy, horrible business. And there's probably a reason for that in God's agenda. It was your job to keep the fire burning on which the carcass or parts of the carcass would be offered. It was your job to dispose the rest of the animal carcass to another part of the town. It was your job to handle the blood and the guts, the filth, the smell, the heat and the toil. How much fun was being a priest? Some things never change. How every priest in the middle of the day must have longed for a break must have longed just to sit down for a moment, to wash their hands, to clean their clothes, to to put on something new and fresh. But they believed in the sacrifice. They believed in what God had said about the power of bulls and goats offered in the right way in his name. But how they must have longed for the work to come to an end. Is there not a way we could get rid of this? To remove sin from us and the land forever? Can you see how the story left them wondering? 
We can't go on like this, can we? Each day the priests would carry out their work from morning right through to, well, I'll tell you in a moment, from early morning as soon as the sun was up and they'd work their way through the five sacrifices in Leviticus and then exhausted, covered in the blood and guts of animal sacrifice, they would come out to the front of the altar and they would stand and they would say to the gathered congregation at three o'clock in the afternoon, it is finished. But it wasn't finished. They knew that the next day as the sun came up, there would be more sin to be dealt with. They would come back and they would do it again and again and again. Their life left them wondering, there must be a better way. And the prophets would speak of a day when the Lord himself would somehow take the whole sinner upon himself and they live longing for that day. During the great years of King David, We know that David was a man after God's heart. We know that David was full of the covenant promise. He knew that he was the recipient of God's blessing. And then God made him an incredible promise in 2 Samuel about the blessing that was given to Abraham, how that blessing would extend not just to the ends of the earth, but that blessing would become an eternal one. That blessing would go on forever. That blessing would bridge the gap between heaven and earth, between death and life. And David, if you read those chapters, was utterly amazed by what God was revealing to him. This is resurrection in the heart of the Old Testament. It's all there. And the story leaves us wondering, who will be this great king that will usher in a kingdom that will never end? Who will be this great king who will usher in a kingdom that will bridge heaven and earth, that would bridge the living and the dead? And so they lived this way, the Jewish people, looking, waiting, wondering, anticipating. And so I guess we could go on all morning, couldn't we? about the way God was weaving his story through the Old Testament. And I've written and spoken much about that over these last eight months or so. Ironic, though, really, that by the time we got to Jesus, so few, so few were still connected with the God story. They were waiting, all right, for someone. But they could only think in their own terms, their own agenda, waiting for someone perhaps to kick out the Romans, waiting for someone to make their lives a bit better, a bit more peaceful, when God all along had this stupendously bigger, greater plan than they'd ever imagined. So by the time Jesus actually did come, there were hardly any who were in connection with the God story. There were some wise men from the East who came bringing their amazing gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, gold for a king, frankincense for a, peace, for a priest, and myrrh for a sacrifice. Not bad gifts for Jesus, don't you think? How did the wise men of the East know what the God people couldn't see anymore? Isn't it alarming when people outside the faith have to teach us something about what we believe? And so God sent three men from the East to remind people There was an old man, Simeon, in the temple and he was waiting and looking for the redeeming, the rescuing, the consolation of Israel. So there were these odd people, odd in number perhaps, that were looking for the real Jesus who was still connected with the real God story. We sing, don't we, uh, about how when Jesus came, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in the tonight. Which carol is that for one million pounds this morning? 
Hey, well and Bob, a little town of Bethlehem. And it's true, that little baby, the hopes and fears. Can you see, of all the years, people think that Jesus turned up out of a blue, blue, clear sky. And yet God had been weaving his purpose through every page of the Old Testament. And then Paul makes the point that in the fullness of time, when all was ready, God sent his son, born of a woman as he promised, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. So are you in touch with the God story today? It's one of the challenges. that When Jesus turned up, they hardly noticed. In fact, worse, they thought he was from the devil. Worse still, they nailed him to a cross. So you can understand how there's, for the people that are in tune, are waiting, longing, watching. Which is why when Jesus performed his first miracle at the wedding of Cana, there's obviously this sort of anticipation in the air that maybe this is the time, this is the moment. And so Jesus says, no, actually, this is not my time. My time has not Now, the most important thing about that verse, I think, is hardly ever mentioned. The most important thing about that verse is Jesus is saying, hey, the time we're waiting for is my time. I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am the one that's going to fulfill everything that's been longed for and hoped for over all these years of the God story, but it's not quite yet. And then as you read through John's Gospel, there are a few times when Jesus talks about the coming hour that isn't quite yet. And then here in verse 23 of chapter 12, we get the hour has come. Has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You imagine fanfares, don't you? You imagine the whole of heaven giving it, yes! No? No, only me imagining that one. You imagine shouts and screams from God's people? Perhaps not. Jubilation, trumpets. But then almost without a pause, with incredible seriousness and solemnity, The verses almost drone on, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Already the cross towering over Jesus, too heavy, too overwhelming, almost too unimaginable. Verse 27, Jesus says, now my my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this very reason. I came to this hour. Then we hear about a voice from heaven. And then verse 31, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This is heavy stuff. This is God's monumental moment. This is the moment that God had anticipated from before the foundation of the world. This is our monumental moment too. The hour has come for Satan to receive his fatal blow, for a sacrifice to be made once and for all, for a king to bridge the gap from heaven to earth, from death to life. And Jesus is resolute for this very reason I Okay. So the hour has come. But there are two things that really trouble me about this verse that I want to leave you with this morning. 
And this is not in any way to detract from what Jesus was doing on the cross. Let's be really clear this morning. Jesus was dying once and for all. His death alone is the only means by which we are put right with with God. That's not what troubles me. I'm amazed by that and rejoice in that. I'm troubled by the language around this hour that Jesus uses. You see, firstly, Jesus refers to this hour as the hour of his greatest glory. When John wrote the Gospels, at the beginning of his Gospel, he talks about seeing Jesus' glory. He says it's been fantastic to watch Jesus. We have seen for ourselves his glory. That same John writes about these moments, the cross, in other words, as being the moment in the whole of Jesus' life where we most saw his glory. I would have gone for some miracles, perhaps. I would have gone for the raising of Lazarus. I would even have gone for the resurrection. But the cross, so brutal, gruesome, obscene, utterly depraved, totally degrading. How can the cross reflect God's glory? In fact, I'll put it on my blog. A year or so ago, I forget when and what series, I tried to describe what the cross was like. And I, you can, can't really do it justice in, in normal settings because the language is so vile and, and disgusting. The image is so grotesque to paint in our, in our minds. But I, I had half an attempt I can understand that what the cross achieved was glorious, can't you? I can understand that Jesus' resurrection was glorious. When Satan was kicked in the teeth, when he ascended to heaven, when he comes back again, when we all share that messianic feast, I can understand how all that is glorious. But the cross was utterly disgusting and totally depraved and makes the the, the bull coming in and being slaughtered here and blood splattering everywhere to be quite a pleasant afternoon stroll, really, in comparison. What's this glory? I'm troubled by that. I'm troubled by the fact that the darkest hour of Jesus is described as his most glorious Because I don't want to follow that kind of Jesus. Maybe. The second thing, this makes it worse, if you've had enough, just have a little snooze. Secondly, the hour was a principle he extends to his followers. Now, let's be clear again. There is in no way or sense that we can do anything to... To, to save ourselves, to atone ourselves. I'm not in any way saying that the sacrifices that we make are comparable to Jesus who died once and for all. Let's just leave that to one side. We're not saying anything that undermines that or, or speaks to that situation at all. But look at these verses with me. Verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then he widens the principle at verse 25. And I wish he hadn't. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then the killer words from Jesus, whoever serves me must follow 
me, and where I am, where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. The idea that following Jesus takes us to our own cross-like places is very unpalatable, wouldn't you agree? But it is the gospel, and it is what it means to follow the Jesus that we honour. That the idea that following Jesus takes us to our own times of incredible, costly obedience is unpalatable. And therefore we don't preach much on this particular verse because we don't like it. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The cross was utterly disgusting and depraved. And yet Jesus says that somehow if I follow him, I have to follow him to those kind of places. I have to follow him in that kind of way. And in fact, when it's as dark as it could possibly be, when my back's against the wall, when I'm nailed to a cross, when there's a spear in my side, more metaphorically, in those moments might be the moment of God's greatest glory in me. Is that what these verses are saying? The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. I want you to follow me where I am going. I want to suggest that, uh, uh, that, that following Jesus to the cross means a few things. You see, firstly, the cross involved costly obedience. Jesus sweated blood and tears in the, in the garden because of the agony that was before him and in the end said, not my will, but yours. Is it in that moment of costly obedience that stresses me so that I'm sick and battered and torn for the kingdom that that's the moment of God's greatest glory in me? The cross was sacrificial. He sacrificed his desires, his emotions, his well-being, his life. He literally died to self. Is God's most glorious moment in me when I am most pinned to that cross? And thirdly, the cross was to reach the lost. You see, it wasn't a sacrifice for its own sake, for Jesus' sake. You know, sometimes in our Christian life, we deny ourselves things, don't we? You might go without food. You might go without television or chocolate or Facebook or something as a sign that I'm I'm saying no to that in order that I can give myself to this. But it's about you. I'm fasting to hear from God. I'm fasting to see what God wants to do. I'm giving this up in order to do that. The cross achieved nothing for Jesus. Would you agree? He needed none of that, did he? It was all, it was totally self-giving. It was totally about reaching lost people. It was for the lost, for the hurting, for the dying, for the sick, for the sinful. It was self-giving, it was for reaching, saving, healing, liberating all those in darkness. And, And I see clearer now, this week, what it means to take up my cross and follow him. And I'm not too chuffed about it, if you can understand what I mean. Because I want a Christian life that's full of God's glory, don't you? 
And do you know what I think about when I think about being full of God's glory? I think about being lost in wonder, love and praise. I think of fantastic worship. I think of moments when God's presence is so close, you can almost reach out and touch him and hug him. I think of God moving in miraculous ways, and I long for that glory. And yet Jesus had all that, and they said of him, the most glorious moment was when he was broken and crushed and pinned and dying and bleeding and broken for a lost and hurting world. When Jesus was broken and poured out, I use these words carefully, chosen. In some moments we'll break bread, bread that is my body, Jesus says, what did he say? Broken for you. This is my cup which is poured out or poured out for you. And then a few chapters later, I read in my Bible, it says of the church, you are the something of Christ. The body of, sorry? You are the, the body that was broken and poured. You are the body of Christ. I'm not sure I want to be that kind of body that's broken and poured out for the sake of the world and the lost and the hurting and the dying. But is that not the Jesus we follow? Is that not the Jesus we honour? We're Jesus people. We're part of the unfolding Jesus movement. And if they broke him and poured him out, if he was broken and poured out for the lost, can I expect to be fully put together and happily singing, shine Jesus, shine every moment of the day? And so know God's glory. Not if I'm serious about walking the way of Jesus. So Paul would later in life talk about the way his life was poured out. He knew the scriptures inside out. I I don't believe he used that term by accident. Every time he, he poured the wine, he must have thought about his own life that had been poured out. Now, this is not in any way to say that, that the sacrifices that we make are, are comparable to the once-for-all sacrifice Jesus made on the cross, yeah? We've got that clear. But it is to say, if Jesus would give himself in that way, and we follow him, then there's a call on our lives. And he writes about being broken and in another place. He says, but we are, we, this is 2 Corinthians uh, 4, we, uh, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That's fair enough, isn't it? We like that. We're, we'll own up to that as a church. We're quite happy that we're a bit fragile, but God's grace can be shown in us. How chuffed are you about verse 8? We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Ooh, Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body of Jesus, the body of Christ, or in our bodies, take it whichever way you like, it's not very clever either way. We always carry around in our body the the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, so that his life may be revealed in our body. Given over to death. I'm not sure I like that. And then I remember the words of Jesus. That unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, broken, poured out, 
It remains only a single seed. I don't want to remain only a single seed. I want to see many come into the kingdom. So am I willing to be broken and poured out to see that happen? Am I willing for the I in me to be bent into the sea of Christ, as Roy Hessian put it in his classic, The Calvary Road, some 40-odd years ago? You see, I love the promise about Paul saying that our Christian lives are going to go from glory into glory, don't you? I've always really embraced it about how it's going to be more of God and more miracles and more this and more that. And and it means all of that. But what if the most glorious thing for Jesus was the cross? Then going into glory and more glory might mean more brokenness and more sacrifice and being more poured out and being more spent and being more crushed and being more persecuted and being more abandoned and then I say, God, you've got to work in me. You've got to work in me because I long for this church, for our lives to reach those around us. And I'm not sure how ready I am to be broken and poured out. Anyone else connect with that? All over the world, the body of Christ is being broken and poured out. Pastor Youssef Nadakani has been in the news. He's been uh, trending on Twitter and on Facebook, this Iranian pastor. They said to him, if you, don't, if you don't denounce your faith in Jesus, we'll execute you. He says, well, I won't. And so they ask him again just to make sure he hasn't fully grasped the severity of the situation. And he said he won't, and he said he won't. And it is actually against Iranian law that he should be executed. And so we've been encouraging people around the world to write to their Iranian ambassadors. But I think about him as a pastor of a church with a young family. The parallels are all too frightening. And when they said to me, well, there's this or there's that, I, I wonder what I'd say. What would you say? And yet these first disciples that got so caught up in the Jesus story, he said to them, you're going to follow me where I am. The Bible says they were all executed for their faith. You know, wow. These guys knew what it was to be broken and poured out. I want to know their power, but maybe I need to know their brokenness too. Maybe that's the backstory of the gospel that we don't hear often enough. Because we're afraid that people will say, well, I don't want to follow that kind of Jesus then. Do you remember that moment in the gospels in John chapter 6 when they realized what following Jesus actually meant? And a shed load of them said, well, we're out of here, we don't want that. We want the happy, clappy kind of Jesus, the one that blesses us and heals us and just whips us up to heaven. And Jesus said, I'm not that kind of guy. And many of them left. I'm not being asked to choose between my life and honouring Jesus. But I am being asked to be broken and poured out in so many ways. Am I willing to be broken and poured out to spend time with my neighbours? Spend time with the people that God places around me at work? And that's the same for you. Are you willing to give of yourself? Are you willing to sacrifice yourself? Are you willing to put yourself out? To go with a different agenda? Are you willing to open up your home? Are you willing to have people around your table? Are you willing to face ridicule or strife as you take a stand? 
Are you willing to be mixed up with the kind of people Jesus mixed with? Are you willing to offer love and dignity and hope and life? Whatever it costs. The biggest moment of God's glory was the cross. Then my biggest moment of showing God's glory might not be as nice or as comfortable as I'd like to think it should be. Hey, but remember, whenever you carry the cross, resurrection is never far away. How cool is that? I couldn't resist drawing into next week. I've spoiled it for you now. Jesus comes back, you know that. Whenever you carry the cross, resurrection is never far away. And we long for resurrection, don't we? In our lives, in our relationships, in our church, in our community. So we carry the cross that resurrection might never be far away. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's a harvest, isn't it? Hello? It's a harvest. The man who loves his life will lose it. Well, the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Let's pray.